Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Steve Grasso, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond surging as the company names a new CEO. Will this be the big turnaround for the company? We will dig in. Plus, our call of the day. One top analyst says FedEx is dead money, but the stock reaction may be telling a very different story today. We'll explain. And later, former Nasdaq CEO Bob Greifeld is with us. We will get his take on the recent pain in the IPO market. But we begin with late-breaking news on the trade front. Beijing lowering expectations ahead of tomorrow's high-level trade talks in Washington. We just heard from President Trump on those trade talks. Let's get straight to Kayla Tausche in D.C. with the latest. Kayla. Well, Melissa, the markets have been whipsawing all day in response to Chinese officials telegraphing exactly how they feel about these trade talks and what they expect to be brought to the table. Earlier today, we had Chinese officials telling Bloomberg they're open to a partial deal, even though they're frustrated by the blacklisting of 28 security and technology companies. Then we had a Financial Times report about purchases of soybeans. But then we had a Reuters report later in the day that said that uh, Chinese officials, because of that blacklisting by the Commerce Department. Uh, they are lowering their expectations for the outcome of these trade talks. Perhaps uh, a shot across the bow to the U.S. government as it tries to figure out exactly what to do behind closed doors over the next two days and what potential truce, deal, uh, or no deal to accept or leave on the cutting room floor, as it were. Uh, that report significantly moved the market. Perhaps the intention uh, of those Chinese officials who were speaking to those reporters. And just after that news broke, our Eamon Javers asked the president about his views on trade talks and his response to China. There's really only two people that matter on this one, and that's President Xi and myself. We get along very well. I can't imagine he likes me the way he did when I first became president. Uh, so certainly uh, there are two people that matter, as you heard the president say, himself and President Xi, but they are not going to be meeting this round. It is going to be uh, Vice Premier Leo Hu, the Treasury Secretary of the United States and the U.S. Trade Representative. Perhaps if it goes well enough, President Trump and President Xi could meet next month. Uh, and if things go well in the next couple of days, you could see the the tariffs on $250 billion uh, not raised to 30 percent from the 25 percent. But definitely, Melissa, uh, people are saying those sanctions that the Commerce Department announced are a real issue. It's just unclear how the U.S. is going to respond to all of these smoke signals that China is putting out. Kayla, did it sound like the president was more optimistic about the chances of the deal uh, in that latest uh, the public comments that he made just within the past 15 minutes or so? Um, he recycled some familiar semantics, Melissa, so it's not quite clear whether he's thinking any differently about it now than he was, say, Monday. He said he's been tough on China. He said the U.S. was down. He did hit back at China's view that it's stated for a long time any deal needs to be a win-win. It needs to show that China and the U.S. are on equal footing. The president said, no, we've been down. We're not going to do a deal that looks like that. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. So we saw the whipsaw action yesterday. We finished at the session lows. Today we finished close to the session highs. Guy, what do you make of all this? Well, I mean, what do I make of it is it's very hard to handicap on a day-to-day basis the rhetoric that's going back and forth. But then, you know, to Kayla's point, President Trump actually said any deal has to be better than 50-50 in the U.S.'s favor because, and I'm paraphrasing now, so I apologize, we've been taken, because we've been, been taken advantage of for a long time, which may be true, by the way, and the Chinese are walking it back. Again, 
from my from where I sit, I don't see anything getting done. Now, do they come away tomorrow and say, you know what, we've laid the foundation for President Xi and President Trump speak in a month? Yes, that's a bullish outcome, I think. I just don't see it happening. I think both sides are too dug in at this point. Not even a small deal. I don't believe so, but it doesn't well, mean that I'm right. What's a small deal in your view? Just on tariffs. Just okay. maybe pushing out tariffs. Not anything on tech. Nothing on IP. But it's bipartisan. They have been taking advantage of us. This is a bipartisan issue. I think you're going to see a small deal, and that's enough to keep the market going. I mean, no more tariffs. Not putting in the next couple of tranches of tariffs. Wouldn't that be a very positive thing for I think the market? it would be. Yeah. I mean, listen, the market has shown you that just the smallest bit of progress is positive for equities in the relatively short term. So if we get some kind of movement, if we get something where, like Guy had said, where all of a sudden, okay, uh, President Trump and she are going to meet next month, I think that would be a positive move for the relatively short term. What I'm concerned about is that you cannot handicap this. There's been a lot of damage done. And if you look at kind of the strategic part of this, we know that Trump likely needs a deal before the election comes along. So he's going to be pushing for that. However, the Chinese don't. And they've pushed it out this, this long. And guys talked about this the whole time. Their incentive is to push it out until the election. See if they can get a potentially a better deal. So I'm not sure. Even if we have that progress, but I don't we, we might get short-term I, I don't pop, see a better. But, but what's the you know, but, long-term? But BK, this is bipartisan. Everyone, uh, Elizabeth Warren is just as hard on China as Trump is. So this is not, I think they're beginning to realize China is that there's not an easier deal coming, no matter who is Maybe. sitting I'm not, I'm not there's sure. There's a better group to negotiate, possibly. I mean, when you think about it, listen, if we've, done all, yeah. if we've done all of what we've done so far just to push out an increase of tariffs that exist, that didn't exist over a year ago, which have actually caused us to go into a manufacturing recession. If you look at that ISM data that we got in September, it was the lowest print since June of 2009, okay, showing contraction. If we just push out further tariffs, do you expect the markets may like it? Do you expect the global economy to? Unleash? But you understand. Yeah, that's why I think it's a short you, term. But you understand. What's the point? But you understand we're not doing this over tariffs. Of this course, was always about. The, but that's the point, Steve. If you're just going to. But you have no leverage down. over China. You have zero leverage over China. Okay, but, but the this. longer this goes on, how much leverage do you think either side has if we go into a global recession? It doesn't. It doesn't. I, I, at, eventually, companies companies are going to have workarounds in their production levels or the supply chains. The same not way we saw Apple falls off. I mean, what? this is the thing. Not if demand falls off. Look at what we're starting to Recessions see. are cyclical, Dan. They're going to happen. We haven't had one in a long okay. time. Neither so, one of us economists. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. I'm just telling you. No, we, we know that recessions are cyclical. That, it's I, not, it's, you don't have to be an economist to say it. An economist, by the way, can only tell you we're in a recession after we come out no of it. No doubt about it. I think that there's a fair point to be made, though, that President Trump would like to have a win in the column when it comes to China ahead 100%. of the elections. The it, has nothing, it may but not have anything is, to do is with... Is it a win... If he doesn't increase no, the I tariffs get it. that he I get put it. on last year, it's not a win. What is what what can be perceived, what he will portray as a win? I'm not talking about a yeah. real win. Okay. I'm not talking about a real intellectual. So, like, but that's a short. That's a sugar high. Right. If there's a sure. not a, if there's a win, something you can chalk up into the real world. Now let's talk about what the market's going to do. Right. So you get this incremental progress. The market may rally on that. But then the reality of what Dan's talking about is that we are already in this global slowdown, possibly recession. Demand is not picking up. And so ultimately, I think the market starts to get rational and say, OK, there was a win in that column, but it hasn't changed the economics any. And therefore, we continue to kind of get mired in this and potentially. Go lower. It's interesting. Steve made a good point. It is bipartisan. I agree 100%. Yeah. But my pushback would be, if you give me just a few seconds, is 
A lot of this has now come down to saving face, especially for the Chinese. I think it's probably more important, although it's clearly important for President Trump. With, with a potential, and I'm saying potential, President Warren, I think maybe the trading, the negotiating style might be such that a deal can be struck and the Chinese can save face. I know that's somewhat nuanced, but I think it is important. President Trump has a very distinct style, and he's not particularly... Um, soft when it comes to some of the rhetoric that he goes back and forth. I mean, calling them enemies and such is not, it doesn't really Have help Have you heard cause. Elizabeth Warren talk about Wall Street? She's but not exactly warm and fuzzy. With, she, she argues about the Wall same Street, way Trump, but I, she argues the same way, and about China. She argues the same way that enough. President Trump is, does, but I, I, I'll grant you that, that President Trump does it in a very, very coarse, in-your-face, Twitter, social media that's much more aggressive to the layman than Elizabeth Warren. Let's talk more about the market expectations heading into tomorrow's high-stakes trade talks. Joining us now is Rebecca Patterson, Chief Investment Officer at Bessemer Trust. Rebecca, always great to see you. Um, are you expecting anything, be it skinny, be it small, be it pared down, be it watered, whatever, <laughs> this week, I next week? I mean, it week? seems like both sides are talking about the possibility of a narrow deal, maybe more agricultural pur- purchases. And, and I, th- I think this is a great discussion that you all are having on the desk in terms of if we simply postpone tariffs that have been threatened but not implemented yet, how big a deal is that? Um, you know, again, short term, it's good news, right? We're removing a threat or at least postponing a threat. But does it change policy uncertainty? Does it suddenly unleash CapEx? I would argue probably not. And even if we have a small trade deal, as we go into 2020, now we have election uncertainty. If I'm a CEO and I don't have to make an investment right away, I can kind of wait and see what happens. I'm probably going to wait and see what happens doesn't mean the economy goes into recession. It doesn't mean the economy doesn't grow, but it probably puts a cap on things. But you've got amazing, aggressive global central bank easing providing an offset. So I'm kind of thinking about this as a muddle through economy and a muddle through market that trade deal, whatever happens this week, who the heck knows? But I agree Trump probably wants a deal before 2020, something to put a win in that column. And that's good news at the margin. But it doesn't remove uncertainty, and it's right. not going to be enough to, to change animal spirits ahead of the election. How can that be the backdrop to a market that's a few percentage points away from record highs, though? I mean, I, do we sustain these levels, even if it's muddled through? I think it's a really good point. You know, when you think about a lot of the investors out there, people like me, right? We have balanced portfolios. We have stocks, bonds. We have lots of stuff. We're not going to be out of the equity market altogether. But you've seen in the last year, since really since the trade war started, most of the money going into equities isn't going into cyclicals. It's going into REITs. It's going into utilities. It's going into defensive equities. So people who need equity exposure are doing it in the safest way they can, which in a way is resulting in some crazy valuations for some of these sectors, which puts the bias of risk the other way. That if we have good news, just like we saw at the beginning of September, the rubber band snaps and cyclicals take off. But I don't, I don't have a high probability on that kind of good news being sustainable for now. So, Rebecca, the other uh, phenomena has been that the, because the U.S. is not in recession yet, a lot of capital is flowing into the U.S. Yeah. But what we've seen this month, we've seen consumer confidence roll over like it did this time last year. Uh, obviously, the ISM prints were not great. Mm-hmm. How much does that concern you that the U.S. is about to crack? Well, I mean, we, we all know on this desk that the U.S. is driven by the consumer. And, yes, consumer confidence has come off its highs, but with an unemployment rate, at 3.5 percent, jobless claims at a 50-year low, 
refis are on fire again as falling interest rates have helped mortgages. So the consumer's in a good place. If we see that manufacturing contraction, you know, if companies are laying off workers and if those laid off workers aren't going out to eat or going to a movie or buying that new car, then we need to worry. Um, but as long as we see Fed easing and that transmission channel continues to work to help the consumer through residential, et cetera, it's hard to see a recession happening. But I'm keeping a very close eye on weekly jobless claims, consumer confidence. Those would be the big ones to me in terms of the economic data that tells us if that spillover is happening. Well, Rebecca, we, we obviously talk about U.S.-China all the time because we have to. You have but, to. But are we missing the forest from the trees? Is, is there other factors at work, regardless of whether or not a deal is cast, that, that is market negative or market positive? Are we, do you think we're making too much of a U.S.-China trade deal, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't, actually. I mean, you're talking about the two biggest economies in the world that are, are really, it's, it's not just about trade, as you all alluded to earlier. It's about national security. It's potentially about a capital war. When we see the bills that are being put forth, bipartisan bills, um, that could make it harder for Americans to invest in China or China to list on U.S. exchanges, it's bigger than just trade. It's really, are we going to have a multipolar world or are we going to break into two distinct blocks? And that's a longer term issue. But this is a big deal. I don't think we're wrong to focus on it. Um, but there are a lot of other drivers out there. We were just talking before the show as we get into year end and we see all the large financial institutions have to prepare balance sheet for certain regulatory uh, targets they have to meet. Do we see a liquidity squeeze similar to what we saw at the end of last year. Now, there's lots of other factors out there. So I, I think what the point I'd make is you don't want to take your eye off trade, but you want to make sure you're not so obsessed with trade that you forget all the other variables that can affect things. But just to quickly connect the dots, that liquidity squeeze that happened at the end of the year, that helped precipitate the big decline that we saw in the fourth quarter. And so the thinking could be that this is yet another problem which could help precipitate some sort of decline in the fourth quarter of this year? I mean, the good news this year versus last year is, you know, last year as we went into December, we still had a tightening Fed, right? right? And now we not only have an easing Fed, but we have dozens of central banks around the world that are cutting rates. So it's a very different monetary backdrop. Um, so that's good news. If we have some sort of trade deal, certainly good news. But before you get over your skis, euphoria, buying cyclicals, you know, party on, you need to remember that you still have those other variables, such as banks tightening up liquidity right. conditions ahead of year end. That might put a cap on your, your year end party. Okay. Rebecca, great to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Rebecca Patterson of Bessemer Trust. Uh, Grasso, you've been um, in the camp that, that there is some sort of a deal to be had or right. some sort of skinny deal. What happens to the utilities that you like, to those defensive areas that have gotten such um, high valuations? Yeah, I think, of the, the, I think the money defense. has to come out of them. And I did uh -huh. get over my skis and I did buy cyclicals and I bought them too early. I mm -hmm. bought Westrock, WRK. I bought TSE and I bought Olin Corp. And those are names that are at deep discounts. And I think you will see a lot of profits there once the market does turn. You know, Rebecca made a really good point to Guy's kind of question. I don't know what the heck you were doing there, buddy. But, um, I was asking a oh, question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but the point was, is like, are we focusing too much on just a China trade deal? And she said the one big differential between this quarter four versus last mm -hmm. year was that rates were going up and they were expected to go up yeah. through this year. Now they've been cut in half the 10-year Treasury yield um, and they're going lower. Here's the thing. 
The last couple times you tried buying stocks when the Fed started cutting interest rates, if you go back to 2008 and you go back to 2000, it was not a good time to buy stocks. So here we are, and both times the S&P was just off of an all-time high. So I'm just going to stay consistent with the fact over the last 18 months, every time you tried to buy the market at an all-time high, at a pri- you know to a prior high, mm-hmm. it wasn't a good time to buy the market. That's just the point. And so we are not in a, a mid-cycle adjustment that was one and done. We are in a rate-cutting cycle. Make no mistake about it. And so the longer this trade war goes on, the longer the Fed and the rest of the central banks around the world are going to be cutting interest rates. All right. Coming up, the former chairman and CEO of NASDAQ will be here. He'll give us his two cents on everything from the markets to the IPO parade. And we'll also talk about his new book, plus Apple continuing its march to all-time highs. We'll tell you uh, what will take the stock there. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Trump administration finding another target as trade tensions rise with China. The country's biggest unicorns, Deidre Boses in San Francisco with the details. Deidre. Melissa, this blacklist hits at the core of China's technology ambitions, artificial intelligence in particular. It includes some of the country's most promising startups. And unlike Huawei, which was put on the blacklist months ago, they are not yet dominant in their field, so they could struggle more under the sanctions. Take Megvi. It is a $4 billion unicorn that develops facial recognition technology for China's video surveillance system. It filed for a $1 billion IPO in Hong Kong, which would make it the first AI company to go public, and a Chinese one at that. Those plans could now be complicated. Goldman Sachs, one of the underwriters, says that it's evaluating its involvement in the IPO in light of the company's addition to the blacklist. Since time, that's a $7.5 billion startup considered the world's most valuable AI company. It has a research alliance with MIT that's now being reviewed by the university. Both startups have a number of foreign investors, from SoftBank to Fidelity to Macquarie. And while the latest U.S. move could deal a significant blow to these companies, keep in mind that some of the biggest American tech companies have been banned in China for years. There's Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. All of the companies and media outlets that you see here on your screen are currently locked out of China by the Great Firewall. All this, Melissa, to underline the role that tech continues to play in U.S.-China relations. Back to you. All right, Deidre. Thank you, Deidre Bosa in San Francisco. Well, tensions with China have caused a lot of volatility in the markets over the last few months, but our next guest is a man who has navigated some of the biggest market-moving events in the last two decades. Joining us now is Robert Greifeld, the former chairman and CEO of NASDAQ. He's also the author of a new book, Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. Bob, it's always great to see you. It is great to be here with you, Melissa, and the rest of the crew. Welcome back to Fast Money. Um, we'll talk about the book in just a minute, but I want to get to what Deidre was, was talking about. Here at the NASDAQ, we sit here every single night, and we see so many uh, Chinese IPOs come here and list at the NASDAQ. Are you worried about uh, Chinese listings coming here at this point? Well, I think you'd have to have some level of concern, but understand when you're going through negotiations, people will take different positions to posture during the negotiation. So we have to see what comes out when the trade deal does come out. So I would guess right now it's primarily posturing, except for the national security aspect, which I think has some real uh, components to it. But I think you see a lot of posturing. Uh, I think it would be really counterproductive for Chinese IPOs not to access NASDAQ in the deepest, most liquid capital market on the planet. They don't want they don't want to give up that opportunity. Could you see, though, uh, a scenario in which even if something doesn't happen formally, that there is a chill 
on Chinese listings as they wait for clarity that that will not happen. It would be almost more detrimental for them to list and then be forced to delist, I would think. I, I would think so. So your question is, can I see that? Yes. Do I think that's the probable outcome? No. I, I believe that you'll see Chinese companies come here. I think we're in the thick of this trade negotiation. Posturing is going to be very heavy. You can't get too uh, clouded by the smoke. Let's see what happens when uh, the deal's announced. Bob, obviously you had great, you know, you're here for a long time. You understood the exchange space extraordinarily well. Now from 30,000 feet, M&A in the space, some M&A not happening. What's your sense in terms of exchanges over the next year? What do you see happening in this, in this space? Well, certainly the Hong Kong-London deal did not last for very long. So we went through that one very quickly. I would say this. You have to understand that exchanges are fundamentally transaction processing companies. And I would say back in the day, and I'm sure it's probably true, in the NASDAQ data center, you probably have enough processing power to process every equity trade on the planet. So if you can put more flow through that platform, then you certainly have better economies of scale. So that's always going to be an underlying discussion when you think about exchanges or payment systems, anybody involved with uh, uh, that kind of transaction processing. So it's a constant fact of life running exchange. doesn't mean it's going to happen. You also have to mitigate that by the fact you have nationalistic concerns, you've got regulators involved, and they like having you know, dominion over their local exchange. So, Bob, last week we saw a lot of venture capitalists get together and talk about doing direct listings. Right. What does, what's the exchange's role in that? Is it a threat to exchanges, or are you kind of indifferent to that? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak for NASDAQ today, but I think at the end of the day you're relatively indifferent, right, because the company is trading. It's really a changing of the initial capital-raising function, which the exchange is not directly in, involved with. So it's separating out really two functions. One is to get public. And then the company can decide in the future when they want to raise capital. And, you know, the problem it solves, if it solves any problem, is that if a company goes public, the stock goes up 30 percent, you don't feel smart, goes down 30 percent, then the investors don't feel smart. So you have a way to kind of isolate those two actions. So, Bob, you've seen uh, during your tenure, you saw the active go to passive with ETFs. Do you think that that's somehow brewing some sort of a whiplash effect? in the market. We've seen volume decrease, average lot size. Right. But it's kind of scary to the individual de- investor, with the ETFs, how many there are these yeah. days. Well, you talk about what I've seen in the world. I have to understand when I started at NASDAQ in 03, floor-based trading, and some of us are old enough here to remember that, was the dominant form of trading. So there's been so many changes, and certainly passive has been a massive movement, right? So I believe uh, that it will seek its balance in time. Right. And the way I would say if 98 percent of the world is passive and I'm active, I'm the two percent that's active, uh, I think I can do pretty well as an active investor. And I'd be able to broadcast that that's results because passive has predefined rules that they have to follow. And if you're an active trader, you know what those rules are and you can obviously figure out how to trade and invest in and around those rules there. So massive change. Passive is certainly a dominant uh, form in terms of growth. But I would not rule out the active guys over time. So, so, so you were here when Google in 2004 right. went public. And at the time, the world was convinced this was an amazingly transformative company. Uh, company. So in the past year, we've had some companies that people feel just as staunchly about are transformative, that sort of thing. Why are these deals in 2019 not working the way that, that some other big deals had worked in the All past? Right. Let's not forget that Google did not exactly work. 
on the IPO day. Well, forget, forget. I, I just mean yes. it was an auction, and that was a, you know those guys were willing to try something new, right? I mean, for all, it was a, a Dutch auction. Yes, and they didn't actually run the Dutch, but Google first day trading was down. It was yeah. not the or that success in that day. It was success obviously over time. So I would use that Google example to say to people looking at the current IPOs, don't worry about the day. Worry about the fundamental business that you're investing in and what it's going to do over time. What I get annoyed with is when people say, all right, they waited too long to go public. And that's like saying I waited too long to rip off the investors. No, I come public because I have a good, solid business that has a uh, growth plan over time. And whether I do it one year or the next shouldn't matter because I'm executing my business the same as I would, right? When I ran NASDAQ and the way Adina is running NASDAQ, she's not thinking about the quarter. She's thinking about building the institution over time. So the timing of the IPO, I think it's much ado about nothing, right? You have a good company. Right. Google was a good company, even though the first six months as a public company was not successful. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking with you on Squawk Box earlier yes. earlier this week, and you made some headlines when you compared what's going on with today's IPOs with the dot-com bubble. It seems that one difference, though, is that this bubble seems to be bursting um, not just on the first day, but also in the hands of the private capital that had invested in these stocks. And so I'm wondering if you think that this is less detrimental. The dot-com bubble was actually much bigger. I mean, the comparison is interesting, but, it, you know, I feel like there are some shortfalls to it. I, I, I think there are, because, uh-huh. one, I think the comparison is really about one company in particular that I, I, I reference. You can figure out who it is. And that had a lot of uh, attributes of things we heard in the dot-com era with respect to eyeballs, mm-hmm. great user interface, as opposed to underlying business metrics. So I think it's, you're isolated to one company that clearly felt like a right. I wrote an op-ed on, uh, for CNBC today uh, uh, just on that. So I think that kind of stands alone as the outlier for this time and place. On your book, Market Mover Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ, what is going to be the biggest change in the next decade, do you think? Well, I, I wish I knew, right? But I can <laughs> make a guess as any, anybody else can. So I think what you'll see is that there's an increasing concentration of the capital markets in a couple different places. So if I am a company in a faraway country, right, 15 years ago that, that, con- that, that company was locked into that world. Now with the electronics in place today, the mobility of capital, you want to go to the deep pool. So when you think about the world today, it's really the, the uh, U.S., led by NASDAQ, uh, London, and it has been Hong Kong, where capital formulates. So I would guess that some place in mainland China will take that role, but you're going to see the financial world from capital raising centered around three areas. Right? And I think the lesser markets will have issues over time competing with a deep liquidity in those major financial centers. The big will get bigger. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, great to see you. It's great to be here. Congratulations you well. on your Thank book. You. Bob Reifeld. Former chairman of the NASDAQ. Yes. Quick comment about, you know, I'm sure this is a, I have Did the book. Did you read it already? No, I didn't read it. it I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm disappointed because I like the books with the pictures, you know. And I was hoping we Are were here a long time, or? like maybe some maybe fast money to... when we were together all over these years. That's true. He's been not... a landlord for many years. It's unfortunate. Maybe in the set, is it like you do a second, second version? Second version. Yeah, second version. Jam some pictures in. Second printing, you're going to be on the cover, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Genius. Right. The new book is called Market Mover Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. Pick a copy up. 
Uh, you can read Bob's op-ed. He mentioned it on our website, CNBC.com. We've got much more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Apple's 2020 vision. Why one top analyst says smart glasses could be the next big thing. We'll explain. And later, hitting headwinds? What to expect from Delta when it reports results tomorrow? Stick with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money, a trifecta of headlines for Apple on Wall Street today, starting with a sweet call by Canaccord Genuity, raising its price target on the tech giant to 260 from 240, citing increased demand for the iPhone models, including the most recent iPhone 11. Plus, an analyst over at TF Security saying in a note that Apple may be planning new hardware releases, including smart glasses for early 2020. Now, all this as the stock inches closer to a fresh all-time high. It is already up 44% this year alone. So could Apple be your best bet in tech, or has the rally gone too far too fast, Guy? Well, I would say, I would say if you're trading this stock, this is a great opportunity to take some money off the table. Now, people are going to blow back and say, ah, oh, you're out of your mind. It's, you don't trade this. You're you out own of your it. mind. You don't trade it. See, I told you it's people would say already. that happened this Immediate. quick. But you know what? You go back to October, and the stock traded up to 229 and had an epic failure. Dan has spoken about this a number of times. From peak to trough, from 230 to 140 was a pretty swift move to the downside. I'm not suggesting that'll happen again. But go back and look at Facebook, what's that done over the last couple months. Go back and look at Amazon, massive double top. Look how underperforming that stock has been over the last month, month and a half. So if you're trading this stock, why not take some money off the table at current levels? And and if you want to buy it, that's a great way to, to phrase it. You wait until it makes a new high and you use that as your support. But the narrative was the hardware game was over. It was all about services. They were, were going to go nowhere from here. The, the multiple was not going to increase. You have a lot of levers that Apple can pull now. And now hardware is a tailwind. It's a buy right now. Still, I, I feel like this is a classic case of positioning that we always talk about. Exactly. The positioning on Apple had gotten so negative when it came to sentiment around the iPhone right. 11. And so even incrementally, it looked a little better. And all of a sudden, bam. People are going to the other side of the boat. Yeah, and, and so now everybody's on that bandwagon, right? So I suspect a lot of the move that we've seen off the lows is anticipation or at least uh, speculation that things weren't as bad as, as sentiment thought. Now sentiment is saying, hey, everything seems to be great. There's going to be all these things coming out. So for BK, everybody's on that side of the boat. He's going to be on the other. And I think Guy Adami's on that side of the boat. I would be a seller of Apple here. On that side of the well, boat. you know, it's yeah. scary that when side it of the boat is starts to list. Yeah, list. exactly. That's dangerous when a boat lists. It does. Apparently. It could be. Now, volatile. by the way, you know, Dan, who everybody says ne- ne- negative, what Dan, did they he's say? such a downer. Everybody yeah. says that. Yeah. Yeah. He's actually been. Yeah. He's yeah. actually yeah. had some bullish yeah. options action in the Apple. I've seen it on your show on Fridays at five thirty. He's done a tremendous job. And we have said for a long time now the stock will trade at 228. So good for Dan Nathan. But now well, what? But well, now well, here's what? the thing. I, I think Guy mentioned that peak to trough decline last Q4. And yeah. really what happened is this company gave kind of optimistic guidance. And, and I think that they thought the world that they lived in, that they were selling into China, wasn't going to be altered that much by trade. But it did. And on January 2nd, when they pre-announced the first time in like 10 years on a negative basis, the stock had had that 40% peak to trough decline. It got too negative. Here we are, year over year, the dollar is higher. They have a very iterative phone. That last Q4 in China, their units and iPhone units were down 30% year over year. And a lot of that had to do with just their slowing economy, the trade war, that sort of thing. So when you think about Apple and the hardware, 
square in China, six and a half percent market share, number five behind four yeah. locals. I just don't see in this Q4 how they are going to be able to put up big hardware numbers. And the last point I'll just say is if the Chinese want to regulate Apple, they can do it in services. They can do it in that app store, and they're already they're starting going to push back. They're going to do it. I know, have, so why buy the stock at all time? That's all they, all they have to be because everyone, to get back to the positioning point, is we, everyone threw out that hardware number so uh, to trough levels that no everyone discounted it off their balance sheets. So right now, all they have to do is surprise, even incrementally. Except that now the yeah. government's getting mad about an app that they have on their app store. I understand. The, app the, that the narrative changes. For Hong the Kong stock protests. is well, I know, but you just said, Wait, but didn't you just say that buy it if it makes a new time high, all-time high? You've got to wait. The, yeah. you gotta okay, wait. all right. But you're, so yeah. you're not saying to buy it here. No, no, I no. just say you got you got to wait until it uh, trades above 233 and then use that as your support. I want to button this. Are you predicting another repeat of last Correct. Q4? I, I think Q4. the company would be crazy not to give cautious guidance given the environment if there is no trade deal they got caught with their pants down last q4 in china and the breeze wasn't so great Mel. whoa wow wow that is a major hold on at its highs it had a trillion dollar market cap it lost 40 percent to its december or january yeah, second lows that's real stuff that's real breeze <laughs> that's wind Coming up, options traders are betting that this airline stock is about to take off. We'll reveal the name, tell you how to fly it. Plus, Bed Bath & Beyond surging after hours as the company names a new CEO. We'll give you the details in a whole retail roundup. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Bed Bath & Beyond surging 21.5% after hours after the company announced a new CEO. Let's get to Eric Chem, who's back at headquarters with more. Eric. That's right, Melissa. Minutes after Target announced his departure about an hour ago, Bed Bath & Beyond named Mark Tritton its company's new CEO, effective November 4th, replacing interim CEO Mary Winston, who had had that job since May. Tritton was Target's merchandising chief, the chief merchandising officer. Bed Bath & Beyond, though, is in the midst of a major transformation that has seen store closures, big executive reshufflings, and a board revamp. Many of those changes coming as a result from three activist investors. Shares have fallen more than 50% over the last two years as of today's close, so before the big pop. And the market is clearly cheering Tritton's appointment. One source close to the activist investor group told Courtney Reagan earlier, quote, we don't only like this pick, we love this pick. Everything Mark did at Target is exactly what Bed Bath & Beyond needs. He comes with an impressive retail resume that includes roles at Nike, Timberland, and Nordstrom. So now we've got to see, can he deliver more on just today's pop? Back to you, Melissa. All right, Eric, thanks. Eric Chemi. Uh, Grosso, you're making the point about the short interest here. It's a 55% short interest, so you have to be very careful whenever you get any hint of positive news. But when you look back at a chart, the last thing you want to want to hear out of your stock is we're back to 1998 support. This is uh, this has been an avalanche off a cliff that you've seen this stock fail. But you would not want to be shorting it right here because obviously any hint of good news at all. And if the CEO comes in and starts closing stores, running it more efficient, the upside could be could really hurt the shorts tremendously from this point going forward. I mean, if one of the activist investors is saying, we love this pick, well, that yeah. certainly paves the way for some change. You would think. And it's been a disaster now for years. But you look at the last quarter, which was not good on October 2nd, but one thing stuck out, and we actually talked about it, I think. Merchandise inventory were down 17%. I mean, they stripped down inventories in a major way. And what does that mean? Well, maybe they're sort of greasing the skids 
for this next quarter. Maybe margins will improve. Comps are disaster. But to Steve's point, 53% short interest. Stocks had a run. Dana Telsey, her firm, was sort of the axe in the space as a $14 price target. That's probably where it trades to. Well, these stores were called big box retailers for a reason, because they had a lot of inventory. Yeah, I've been to them. You get the big box, you leave. And let me tell you what happens right now, because I spent a little time in the Bed Bath & Beyond recently. When they don't have what you want, you know where you go. You go home and you go to Amazon, and you order it, and it gets delivered to your house. I mean, so you could have all the 20% coupons (laughs) you want, Mel. Um, You know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Your shopping habits notwithstanding, Dan, I think the stock can go higher. That's what we're saying. I'm not saying. I think Steve's point about the short interest. Every time this thing sells off, you don't buy it tomorrow, but every time it sells off, you probably buy it. We got a market flash on PG&E. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa with the details. Deirdre. Melissa, PG&E shares are falling nearly 20% in extended trade. Now, the company has already declared Chapter 11. Now, Dow Jones reporting that a bankruptcy judge has opened the door to a rival Chapter 11 exit plan. This opens up other potential plans coming from bondholders. So this is essentially a win for them. Some context here. Wildfire victims are joining forces with bondholders to contest the current plan. According to the latest headlines, the judge is ruling that the utility will face competition over its shareholder-friendly Chapter 11 plan and handed a win, again, handed a win to bondholders led by Elliott Management. Melissa, back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in San Francisco. Up next, taking flight, Delta gearing up to report earnings tomorrow. We'll tell you how the options market is setting up for the big report. And as we head to break, ESG investing or sustainable investing, it's growing in popularity. In fact, ESG assets more than doubled in 2019 at this year's Delivering Alpha Conference, AFSA Afsane Beshloss, founder of Rock Creek Capital, explained why a company's ESG rating is a good indicator of long-term profitability. Leaving agencies, the S&P and Fitch will have to integrate ESG yeah. into there, and you're starting to see that. And I think the other thing um, is that so far it's been about quarterly earnings, mm-hmm. and if you move towards longer-term sustainability of a company, not just quarterly earnings, I think. Obviously, you have to be investing in long-term value. You have to be investing in your staff and your team. Otherwise, you don't have a company. For more investment ideas from the biggest names in business, visit DeliveringAlpha.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Delta heads into tomorrow's morning's uh, earnings report down 6% since warning last week that tariffs on Airbus jets would seriously inflict harm. But the options market signaling the stock might actually be primed for takeoff. Realm Capital founder Roger De Silva is here to break down the action. Welcome, Roger. Good to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's all about the calls today. Trading three times the daily volume of the puts and it implies a 4% move going into earnings tomorrow. Now, what this, this means is quick trade school here. Implied move. To calculate the implied move, you take the cost of the at-the-money call and the at-the-money put and you divide by the stock price. In Delta's case, we're talking about the 54 call and the 54 put, total outlay of $2, divide by today's closing price of 54, gets you that 4% close enough uh, implied move, where you make money over 56 or below 52. Now, this implied move is more than usual because probably last uh, earnings, you had Delta move over 5%. It's given back all those gains and then some, as you can see right here, and is down about 10% in the last week, breaking this one-year uptrend line. Now, if we look longer term, you're going to see Delta's basically been in a move 
a trading range from 62 down to 45, 17-point trading range, and we're right in the middle of that. I don't like those trades. That's a one-up, one-down risk-reward. I really don't like those trades. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Roger, thank you. He Roger, threw it so, back to you. Yeah. I love that. And you know, a, yeah. It's his first time. Brilliant. I thought he did a yeah. great job. It's brilliant. It's not hard. It's, I mean, it is hard, very hard. It's Dan hard last night Melissa, said sure. what jerks we were the first time oh, he came on the CV. I thought, I thought he did a tremendous job. So, so really interesting about Delta into that print because we had a little guidance last week. That stock had sold off, like Roger just said, about 10%. Below that uptrend, kind of interesting. That implied move, kind of fat for a stock that he just showed us. The long term has been in a trading range. So when you see implied movement like that, it could set up for long holders to sell premium against their long stock and take in some yield. So I actually think that's an interesting set up into the print tomorrow. Do you know seasonality, what the best months are for Delta? November and December. You buy it now in October. He was bullish. I agree with that stance. We had some pretty good moves with the airlines today. We had American Airlines uh, moving higher, some of yeah. their guidance for the third quarter. But, I mean, the point is they go nowhere, right? You have a one-day move. That sounds great, but then it, then it peters out. So, to me, they, these are, you know, particularly Delta has effectively been dead money. If you like to trade, those ranges knock yourself out, but I just don't see them going anywhere. All right. Uh, our thanks again to Roger De Silva. And speaking of Delta, we're going to hear from the company's CEO, Ed Bastian, tomorrow morning after they report. Be sure to catch that interview at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on Squawk Box. All right. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shredded, dead money, not working, spending unchecked, downgrading. Just a few of the scathing words Bernstein had for FedEx this morning. And you would expect that to tank the stock. But you'd be wrong. FedEx hung in there today under a barrage of pessimism. Uh, This is just the latest blow for the shipping giant, which is down more than 20% since it reported earnings last month. So is FedEx finally near the bottom. Is this an example of bad news, good price action? For today, absolutely, and maybe for the next couple of days. But, I mean, where's, where was Bernstein 18 months ago? I mean, this stock's yes, been cutting. fair question. Fair que- it's a fair, fair question. question. Absolutely. I mean, they watched the show. Where were you 18 months ago? I mean, the things that they said in this note, we've Bernstein, been, literally line one. been saying, and listen, I get a lot wrong, but collectively we've been saying this for the last year, that FedEx is doing everything wrong. Now, I know Fred Smith, genius, the whole thing, but the stock still has room to the downside. I don't. I think today's a nice start in terms of what it did. I think there's still further room to the downside, Mark. Yeah, opinion. well, I mean, listen, if it breaks here, it's going back to that 2016 low, which is 120. That's 10%. I mean, you know, I mean, not everyone, you know, can get these things right all the time. But um, at the end of the day, it is a value trap, like Mel said. And they got a lot of um, competing headwinds, not just macro, but some very competitive stuff, too. I'm not even sure this rally today was that great. I mean, in, in view of how the market traded today for FedEx, I would not call this good price action on bad news. It was kind of meh price action yeah. on relatively bad news. So I still think it goes lower. I, I, well, you have UPS and you have FedEx. You can't talk about one without the other. UPS is up 60% year-to-date. FedEx down 13% year-to-date. So now it gets back to that positioning again. Everyone is so long UPS. 
short FedEx, I think you have to unwind that trade. So do you, are you, would you be long FedEx? I, I have to look at FedEx, but trade? if I look at the seasonality of FedEx as well, November seems like a pretty good month for FedEx historically. I thought that fourth quarter was terrible for these guys for the past couple of years. Well, not November. Right? It's overstaffed it's to the holiday it's, yeah. season. It's talking, about mo- it's talking about monthly, though, not the actual quarter as a whole. So if you look at it's monthly month performance, November for the, the, 30 day, the 30-day performance for November, and obviously December skewed everybody last year. Right. So you have to th- throw that year out and then look at it as a whole. But on a monthly, November's a great month. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Steve. I bought Roku last week. I'm still long. It doesn't mean that you have to stay long it, but I think it has the upside to maybe 125 at this point. BK, Brian Kelly. You know, gold has been on fire. A lot of people buying gold, but also a lot of people buying gold mines. Check out the junior miners. GDXJ. At risk reversal. Uh, yeah, so if we get a push out in some of these expected tariffs, Apple may get a pop, may make a new high. I would not be buying it, though, into that October 30th print. That guy done. That Greifeld book, I mean, that's going to be that's going to be right there. I'm going to be reading that sucker tonight when you, I get without home. Without pictures, you're well, going to Well, for Bob, it. I'm going to make, but wouldn't it have been nice to have, like, a Fast Money montage in the middle of the Surprise, book? Surprise, nothing was yeah. in it about Fast Money. Shocking. Yeah. You know, I will tell you that this news out in California, all these power outages, I know Generac was up huge today. You know what? It's not a one-day event. Mm. All right. That is for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.